Nuclear communications. How does one discuss nuclear issues, especially nuclear weapons issues, without freaking people out and making them want to watch cartoons and eat the refrigerator rather than listen to what you have to say about this crucial problem? When it comes to communicating concerns about nuclear, it's hard to know how to be persuasive about our points without being off-putting. Until one activist who specializes in digital communications and messaging tells you. I think we focus sometimes too much on the problem and not as much on the solution. So people tend to associate things like like threats like nuclear weapons with their inherent dangers, which makes total sense. But they also need to associate the dangers of nuclear weapons with solutions and ways forward. And we really need to go beyond describing the problem and go to explaining why our issue is so important and how certain solutions can improve those outcomes. Well, when you hear something about nuclear communications that makes perfect sense, and you have the opportunity to learn how to be better and more effective in all of our messaging, You get to ease a little of the pain we all experience regarding that deadly, uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we get to talk about the importance of messaging and the use of social media to push back against the nuclear industry. Colleen Moore is, at a relatively young age, both a veteran activist and a digital media expert. And she shares with us some practical tips not only on what we should be doing with our messaging, but why. We'll also have Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, as well as nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than the K-pop group BTW will ever talk about in the White House or anywhere else. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 31st, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting here in the U.S., where President Joseph Biden sent shockwaves on his first Asian trip by committing to nuclear deterrence, his exact words, for the Republic of Korea. In a joint statement issued by Biden and Yoon Suk-yeol, President of the Republic of Korea, Biden reaffirmed that the U.S. has extended a deterrence commitment to the Republic of South Korea using, quote, the full range of U.S. defense capabilities, including nuclear, conventional, and missile defense capabilities. 
This increase in nuclear saber-rattling between Russia and the United States leads one to want the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists to reevaluate their doomsday clock, currently set at 100 seconds to midnight, in a real-time basis, because I think we just got a little bit closer to nuclear Armageddon. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, not unexpectedly, reaffirmed its evaluations that the new-scale power corporation's design for a small modular nuclear reactor is, quote-unquote, adequate, adequate to protect the project from damage by earthquakes, meaning it is good enough, but that's not good enough when you're talking about nuclear safety. The move to reevaluate the 2020 approval of the design came after an agency engineer John Ma had raised concerns about the project's vulnerability to earthquakes. Ma has said that collapse of the reactor building could potentially cause a release of radioactive materials into the atmosphere underground that could be deadly. But the NRC's reactor regulation staff said it in note this month that its evaluations were acceptable and updates to design approval were unnecessary. Edwin Lyman, Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists, said an independent panel of experts external to the NRC should evaluate Ma's concerns, and added, these issues are too important to be left to the NRC to resolve. A different kind of radiation concern comes from exposure from airport body scanners, and those concerns have been ongoing for over a decade. Now, in the wake of the latest school shooting in Texas, a school district in North Carolina is seeking proposals for a touchless scanner that could automatically detect weapons without requiring visitors to schools to unpack purses or other bags and to pay for it with COVID relief funds. As with other x-rays, experts noted that children, pregnant women, and the elderly are especially at risk from the mutagenic effects of body scanners. And here with further information is Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. There has been a lot of distress here in the U.S. in recent weeks around the latest horrific shootings, acts of gun violence that occur every day in this country and too often explode into the mass executions, because executions are what they are, that grab the headlines. Each time it happens, some politicians call for change. Meanwhile, the National Rifle Association went ahead with their rally just days after the latest slaughter of children, holding it in the same state, Texas, where the killings had occurred, and blaming the tragedy on some kind of socialist plot while calling for schools to be turned into fortresses instead. And yet, and yet, nothing happens, nothing changes, a fact that many looking in from the outside find impossible to understand. How many of their children are Americans willing to sacrifice in order to preserve their so-called right to own guns? The answer is apparently all of them. But this mentality should not be so hard to understand if we look at it on an even larger scale. After witnessing the horror and suffering caused by the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the logical and indeed only humane decision should have been to immediately abolish nuclear weapons and agree never to develop any more of them. But what did we get? We got the nuclear arms race until the United States and Russia were bristling with them. By the mid-1980s, there were more than 64,000 nuclear weapons in the world, most of them owned by the Soviet Union and the United States. 
Today, the nine nuclear weapon-owning countries refuse to give up their nuclear weapons. As if Hiroshima and Nagasaki weren't appalling enough, there has been study after study to show the utter devastation that using atomic bombs would cause. There have been television dramas and motion pictures and documentaries and novels. And yet, despite the United Nations ratifying the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which is now international law, the nine nuclear states won't sign it. Worse, they actually protested it. They claimed it would undermine the long-standing Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which incidentally demands that nuclear weapon states disarm, precisely what those same nine countries are not doing. In 1983, a landmark conference was held in Washington, DC, led by astrophysicist Carl Sagan and biologist Paul Ehrlich, who introduced us to the concept of nuclear winter. Effectively, a nuclear winter would enshroud the northern hemisphere in darkness caused by the ash and smoke of a major nuclear exchange between superpowers. Survivors and crops would freeze and fail. The worst outcome would be a loss of all life in the northern hemisphere, Sagan and Ehrlich warned. But nothing really changed. Yes, that arsenal has now shrunk from the global peak of more than 64,000 nuclear weapons to under 13,000. But today's bombs are far bigger than those used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the thinking in the Hall of Power prevails that somehow we need nuclear weapons. For what? How many people on planet Earth are the nuclear weapons countries willing to wipe out in order to hold on to their atomic arsenals? Apparently all of us. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. Thanks, Linda. And the federal government has collected more than $44 billion from energy customers since the 1980s, specifically to be spent on a permanent nuclear waste disposal in the United States. And we still don't have one. CNBC put together an interesting report on this, and we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 571. Over to Japan, where on May 18th, That country's nuclear regulator approved plans by Tokyo Electric Power Company, operator of the wrecked Fukushima nuclear plant, to release its treated but still radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean next year, saying the outlined methods are safe and risks to the environment minimal. Pushback was immediate and international. The head of Fukushima Federation of Fisheries Cooperatives Associations said the plan will spell the death knell of the local fisheries industry. Japan's immediate neighbors, residents of China and the Republic of Korea, will face no less harm from the radioactive discharge, with both countries saying their fishermen may have to abandon fishing. All seas being interconnected, neither North America nor Europe can escape the fate if Japan discharges the contaminated water into the ocean. A Chinese report said that the nuclear wastewater from Fukushima would reach North America in 57 days. A Japanese report claiming that South Korea had approved this release of Fukushima radioactive water was strongly and immediately denied by the Seoul government, which called the reports arbitrary and subjective. Despite opposition, Japan, meaning TEPCO, has continued putting in place the equipment and system for releasing this contaminated water, estimated at between 1 and 1.25 million tons. 
China's foreign ministry urged the Japan government to immediately terminate the construction of the nuclear-contaminated wastewater discharge project, stressing that countries across the Pacific have expressed serious concern and firm opposition to Japan's wastewater dumping decision. And how is Japan trying to get away with this? Well, it is time for... Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out week. What a difference a word makes. Whether Japan's ramrodded plans to dump more than one million tons of radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean is acceptable or not hinges on the understanding of a single word, dilute. Japan claims that once this tritium-contaminated water goes into the Pacific Ocean, it will dilute to where it is no longer of any consequence. So what are its own citizens and the fishing industry and the governments of China, Japan, and the South Pacific bellyaching about? Ah, but this linguistic sleight of hand is at the core of much that is understood about nuclear radiation contamination. See... To dilute something is to make it weaker. Like if there's a chemical poison in water, it can in theory be diluted with more water to where it won't harm you. But the smallest unit of danger in any radioactive substance is a single atom. Each atom is radioactive all by itself. And atoms do not dilute. They don't break apart and break down in seawater into something harmless. What they do is disperse. Disperse means to scatter and spread widely. So Japan's planned release of one million tons of radioactive water will allow those tritium atoms to disperse, spread widely, be more available over a larger area, to be taken in by more fish and seafood, which when consumed, will spread their radioactivity internally to those who have the misfortune to eat it. Saying that it will dilute is a linguistic lie, one meant to trick the world into accepting this additional contamination of our precious shared ocean waters. So, protesting citizens of Japan, the Japanese fishing industry, the governments of China and South Korea, and South Pacific nations. You've got it right. You don't want radioactive tritium dispersed into the Pacific. Neither do I, or any of the informed listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, or even those who have a dictionary and want to check these definitions and detect the lie for themselves. It's right there in black and white. And that is why Japan, TEPCO, All you press release writers who use dilute when the proper word is disperse, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. Also in Japan, on May 22nd, there was an earthquake of a magnitude of 6.0 that struck Fukushima and other prefectures in Japan's east and northeast. There was an immediate response from Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, that, quote, no abnormalities were found at the Tokai Number no. 2 nuclear power plant on the coast of Ibaraki or at the Fukushima Daiichi and Daini nuclear power plants. But they never explained 
how long they might have had to check it before coming up with those blanket assurances. In the wake of that quake, it's been found that the foundation supporting the pressure vessel at Fukushima Daiichi has lost its concrete, and the rebar is exposed inside the reactor of Unit 1. There is a strong possibility that the concrete melted due to the heat from the nuclear fuel and debris that melted down from the pressure vehicle during the accident. Concrete is said to melt when heated to over 1,100 degrees Celsius, which is 2,012 degrees Fahrenheit, and if that happens in the worst case, the pressure vessel may fall because it can no longer support itself. Even Toyoshi Fukita, chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Authority, said, We remain concerned about whether it, meaning the reactor, will withstand a strong quake. And a class action lawsuit has begun in Japan, in which six people who were children at the time of the accident at TEPCO's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant are seeking compensation from TEPCO for thyroid cancer they contracted as a result of the accident. The six, who were between the ages of 6 and 16 when the Fukushima triple meltdown began 11 years ago, claim they developed thyroid cancer as a result of radiation exposure from the nuclear accident. Since being diagnosed with thyroid cancer, they have been forced to have their thyroid glands removed and will undergo lifelong hormone treatment as a result. While TEPCO is trying to deny that there is any connection between their thyroid cancer and the accident, according to statistics from a national research institute, the average number of thyroid cancer cases in children in Japan was only one to two per million people per year for the 10 years until 2007. But in Fukushima, at least 293 cases have been confirmed in the 10 years since the accident. 1 plus 1 equals 2, except if TEPCO is doing the math. In Ukraine, this report just in. The Ukraine state nuclear company has warned of a possible disaster at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant that is under the occupation of Russian forces. It says the Russians have explosives and weapons on the premises of the facility and warned that the Russians' explosives could accidentally explode, leading to a nuclear disaster. Russia has deployed more than 500 troops to the nuclear facility at Zaporizhia and have fired on Ukrainian workers and damaged the facility. There is a national call for the nuclear plant to be freed from the Russian occupiers for the safety of Ukraine and the world. Meanwhile, Russia has hinted that it is seeking to cut off Ukraine from the nuclear power generated at Zaporizhia unless Kyiv pays Moscow for the electricity. A spokesperson for Ukrainian nuclear authority, an ergo atom, said that Russians do not have the technical capacity to supply energy from Zaporizhia nuclear power plant to Russia or Crimea. In 2021, before the outbreak of the conflict, the plant accounted for one-fifth of Ukraine's annual electricity production. Croatia's plan for a new radioactive waste storage facility near its border with Bosnia is facing mounting opposition from its neighbor due to concerns that the plant could have a potentially devastating health and environmental impact. Croatia chose the site in 2018 for storing their half of radioactive waste produced by the nuclear power plant Kursko, which it co-owns with fellow European Union member Slovenia. 
In a bid to halt the plan, Bosnia responded by declaring its land closest to the site across the border a nature preserve, but with little success. Bosnians are growing increasingly concerned about the possible consequences of this nuclear waste dump on their pristine rivers and organic farming industry, and hope that Croatia may still change its mind on the location. France's nuclear industry remains in crisis, as 29 of their 56 nuclear reactors are still shut down, many for routine maintenance, but now 12 of the newer nuclear reactors have been taken off the grid because of cracks in the cooling tubes. Instead of its highly touted around 70% of France's energy, the country's nuclear power stations only supplied 37% of the electricity requirement in April. That's the lowest it has ever been, and it's already foreseeable that there will be power shortages come this winter. And finally, this bit of good news. The Australian Labor Party has committed to sign and ratify the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Recent polling demonstrates that three-quarters of the Australian public support this action. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is a long-term champion of nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation. In proposing the resolution committing to the treaty in 2018, he said the new policy is labor at its best and that nuclear disarmament is core business for any labor government worth its name. Backing also includes two dozen unions and well over 50 local branches of the Labor Party. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, the radioactivity from nuclear activities is the gift that keeps on giving for millennia, whether we want it to or not, and believe me, we don't. But still, the nuclear industry continues its Ponzi scheme, sucking up more and more public funds for new nukes while refusing to acknowledge the radiation dangers the industry has created in the entire nuclear fuel cycle, let alone do anything to clean it up. The nukesters pour millions of dollars into their PR propaganda to convince not only you, but our congressional members that nuclear is the cure for everything from climate change to national security to the common cold, when it's technology that harms people and the environment at every step of the way, from uranium to bombs to reactors to waste, even as it makes a small sector of the population obscenely rich. In order to fight against nuclear, we need to know the facts so that we can take meaningful steps to turn this around while there's still the possibility that we can. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We know where to look for the nuclear story, know the questions to ask so we can report on the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth that the industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand, and mainstream reporters don't know to ask. That's why the time would be right now, pre-holidays, to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. You can also set up a monthly $5, the same as a cup of coffee and a tip here in the U.S. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview.
If those of us who oppose nuclear are to make significant process in putting forth our perspective and our goals, we need to be much better in forming and sharing our talking points, using modern technology to the fullest. And that's what today's interview is all about. Colleen Moore is Digital Engagement Manager for Beyond the Bomb and Global Zero. She creates content to promote the message of eliminating nuclear weapons. Colleen has experience in campaigning for peace and justice issues, including ending U.S. support for the war in Yemen, promoting human rights and justice in Indonesia and East Timor, fighting for peace between North and South Korea, and advocating for access to education for women in Pakistan. Above all, she has a passion for using digital media to advance causes of human rights and justice. That's exactly what she shares with us today. I spoke with Colleen Moore on November 13, 2020. Colleen Moore, great to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to be talking a lot about social media and how to use it for the movement. But in starting out, you've been working with both Global Zero and Beyond the Bomb. Tell us what those organizations are and how they are related to each other. Global Zero is the international movement to eliminate nuclear weapons. So we were founded about 12 years ago really backed by all of these validators and global leaders who were on board with the mission of eliminating nuclear weapons. And we also have this concrete Global Zero action plan for a step-by-step -step plan on how to get to the elimination of nuclear weapons. So right now we're focused really on passing no first use in the United States and then expanding that to a global no first use policy, as well as keeping the guardrails on nuclear disarmament. So like right now, uh, you know, Donald Trump destroyed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty and so many other guardrails on nuclear disarmament and New START, which is really the last arms control treaty left between the US and Russia. Uh, that's really what we're trying to save right now and then expand upon it further. And Beyond the Bomb was founded a few years ago and it really came out of the Global Zero movement. So Global Zero saw that there was this need in this space for, a, for an organization that was focused specifically on grassroots and intersectional efforts in the US. So Beyond the Bomb is focused in the U.S. passing no first use legislation. So it's uh, Elizabeth Warren and Representative Adam Smith's No First Use Act. So we're aiming to pass that in Congress and really doing it through intersectional partnerships and communication efforts and working with a lot of young people in the field. So Global Zero just really saw, especially after the election of Donald Trump and leading up to it, that there was this real need for that space in the field. So that's kind of how they're related and that's what the two groups do. And how are those groups related to the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN? So neither group actively does work on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. We do have this separate, like Global Zero especially, has this separate plan to achieve the elimination of nuclear weapons, but we do work closely and we of course commend the Nuclear Ban Treaty for entering into force. 
this coming January. And so we really do enjoy like working together and seeing how their campaigners and our field organizers on the ground in the U.S. and our global leaders really stand behind the goal of eliminating nuclear weapons. One of the things that has been most impressive, at least to me, about these new groups is exactly how ticked out they are. And they aren't necessarily new groups, but they're new to me. It's part of my expanding awareness into the nuclear weapons arena. But you're really teched out in a good way in getting your messaging across using social media and other digital resources. And you are one of those people who have come to the fore as a real expert in using them. What is your background on these platforms and where and what have you studied about them? I really identify as a campaigner, somebody who has worked in advocacy for a few years. And like I originally, you know, I got my master's degree in international relations. I was thinking of perhaps pursuing a career in policy. And I really discovered social media and other digital communications platforms as something that I really just enjoyed. And I just honestly picked it up on the way while I was getting my degree. So I don't have any actual like formal training in communications, digital communications. And I realized that that's something I really enjoy and something that I think might even be more effective and something that's really needed in so many different issue areas are people that not only know the issues, but know how to communicate about the issues. So I really taught myself how to use social media, how to communicate using email marketing, designing websites, graphic design. So that's really like kind of skills I picked up along the way. And I realized that I think that that's something that this field and other fields also really need. So I've kind of dedicated myself as a campaigner to really knowing as much as I can to communicate about these issues because they're so important. I think that they're crucial because this is the way we're going to communicate, not just our message in general, but specifically to get it across to members of your generation and those who are younger, because so many of us have, you know, passed the gray hair test. And it's time that we build our skills up so that we can bridge the gap and get it to the younger generation. And I have to admit that most of the long-established groups are filled with members who did not grow up with digital media and the assumptions that go along with it. I know I'm pretty tricked out when it comes to Facebook. I'm ish when it comes to Twitter. And as for the rest, I don't know the difference between them. Without mentioning any specific groups, what are some of the areas of digital weakness or digital I don't want to say ignorance as a bad word, but we just don't know about how to use it. What have you seen within the groups? I think generally in the field, and this may not be like platform specific, I think one thing that overall our field can do better at is getting past the problem. And this is just talking about messaging on nuclear weapons, not any specific platform, but even just in communications overall, when we're talking to each other, when we're communicating on social media, you know, when we're sending emails, I think we focus sometimes too much on the problem and not as much on the solution. So people tend to associate things like, like threats like nuclear weapons with their inherent dangers, which makes total sense. 
but they also need to associate the dangers of nuclear weapons with solutions and ways forward. And we really need to go beyond describing the problem and go to explaining why our issue is so important and how certain solutions can improve those outcomes. And people most likely already know, at least to some degree, the dangers of nuclear weapons. They don't really know all of the policy issues and they don't want to and they really don't need to. We need to just reestablish that problem and then move on to the more important parts, which are articulating clear solutions. And I, I've seen that people will definitely shut down if they continue to hear about the negative side of things. So it's not only how to use these platforms, it's thinking about how are we using them and what is the goal of communicating and kind of once we get past that, getting past the problem, talking about concrete solutions, having these concrete campaign plans where we're breaking down our goals and seeing how we're communicating about it, I think that using social media and other digital tools becomes a lot more effective. One of the things I noticed when I first got involved in these issues, which was only after Fukushima, even though I had been at Three Mile Island when it happened, I just went into post-traumatic stress and I ignored everything for all those years. But post-Fukushima, what I noticed as I was trying to ramp up my learning is that those of us who have been involved in this movement for a while have got the information. We are lousy with information. The problem is we don't know how to deliver it which is one of the reasons why as I'm going through materials, I'm always looking for equivalencies. It's like, it's not how nuclear waste is in the fuel pool. It is what is the equivalency in Olympic sized swimming pools? Or what is the equivalency in terms of how much radiation is in that canister in the equivalency of Chernobyl? And finding ways to get that information out. Is there any training that you have gotten or training that you have given and how to whittle our message down so that a newbie can wrap their head around the problem without getting overwhelmed and backing away from it. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely give trainings on messaging and using social media. And one of the things that I really hone in on is proximity and intersectionality. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, like breaking down these issues. So it's something that's real for them. It's something that is a current issue, something that's personally meaningful to them. And it helps people who, like I said, if they already have this base knowledge, and most people do, that nuclear weapons are dangerous, it helps them to start a conversation. And then it also attracts those who don't yet believe that it is dangerous uh, through topics that matter to them most. So we do attach those like national security threats to issues they already care about, then it becomes relatable. And I think also it, it does help to cut through all of the crazy things that are happening in the news cycle. When it is something that they already care about, they'll seek out that information and they'll discover how nuclear weapons are related to that. And I think it also puts the focus of the solution on human-centered solutions. It's about the people at the center of these issues. And I think one good example is like making the nuclear weapons budget real, for example. I mean, we're spending trillions of dollars on nuclear weapons and that's just such a large amount like none of us can actually imagine what that amount is like i don't even know what a trillion dollars looks like but when you break that down by describing trade-offs 
like all sides of the political spectrum actually respond to that kind of message when it attaches that to something they really care about. So especially when I'm talking to like a member of Congress, we'll kind of power map them and see what do they care about if we're trying to talk to them about defunding the Pentagon or whatnot. If it, they say on their website, like they really care about veterans. Imagine the healthcare that we could fund for veterans if we cut the Pentagon budget. So it's about meeting them where they're at, seeing what kind of issues resonate with them, and then breaking it down into simple terms so it really starts a meaningful conversation with them. Using as an example a theoretical young person, which basically in this movement means anybody under 60 at this point, but say somebody who is under 30, perhaps even college age, what are the kinds of issues or framing that they respond to or that they might respond to? I think especially what Beyond the Bomb focuses on, and we have a fellowship program where we Every semester we bring in like 10 to 20 fellows who are like young professionals or in college and we really focus on young activists who care about perhaps like other social justice issues besides like national security or nuclear weapons. And I find that young people really care about like climate change, about healthcare, really just about meeting basic needs. And I mean, you know, Gen Z and even my generation, like we've been at war my entire life. We spend so much money on war and military, and yet we claim that we don't have enough money for healthcare for all, for something like a Green New Deal, for actually addressing climate change. And so I, I find that young people really appreciate that intersectional lens, and that's what really brings people into the movement, is relating to all of the struggles that they're going through right now, especially when they're in college and dealing with massive student loans. I know like I'm one of those people that's dealing with massive student loans and probably will be for the rest of my life. And yet we're spending this crazy amount of money on weapons that are dangerous and that we don't even need and just make us more unsafe. So it's really meeting them where they're at. And it's really those issues that messaging has proven time and time again, that they truly do care about like Gen Z and millennials as well. Sidebar on student loans. I just paid off mine. Now, well. that, was, that was from a master's degree, but it was 21 years ago that I incurred the debt. So I can only have empathy for what the younger generation, what people like you are going through to try and get your head above that financial water. Now, shifting this slightly. You say that you train, and I will be wanting to get information how people can contact you about social media training, because I think that is a crucial part. I've gone through speaker training, I've gone through media training, and I still need much more to get my head above this digital water. But I'd like to ask you now for a brief tutorial, if you would, what exactly is a hashtag? All of you people who understand this, please don't laugh. Just bear with me on this. What is a hashtag and why should we be using them and where should we be using them? Yeah, absolutely. So hashtags are, you know, a word or a phrase that you'll use on mostly Twitter and Instagram. And it's really a way for a certain word or phrase as well as like the rest of that post, the rest of that tweet, rest of that Instagram post to get in front of an audience that it might not otherwise. So for example, 
we like on Beyond the Bomb, we use the hashtag future first a lot when talking about the actions that we are driving towards for no first use and other policies. And that is used by a few other groups and people really like some people, like some groups will like monitor certain hashtags. And so it really starts a movement of, I don't, I don't want to use the word movement, but like, I guess movement of people towards like looking at that word, looking at that phrase. And if enough people use it, it will be trending. So when you go to your Twitter homepage, when you go to certain Instagram pages, you'll see that. And so people are more apt to see your content like on their homepage, but I will say it, it is really hard sometimes to get a hashtag or anything like that trending. But even if you don't get it to the point where it's trending, using it for a certain project or a certain action where a lot of groups are participating in a certain action. Like I know we partner a lot with the Women's March and Indivisible and ACLU and a lot of other progressive groups. And like recently we've been using the hashtag count every vote and the hashtag protect the results. So all of these other groups that are using this hashtag when they're kind of search, and I do this almost every day, I search the hashtags that I use on a regular basis and I'll go through and like, like and retweet and share on Twitter and Instagram, other groups who are using that hashtag because I want to uplift their message and other groups will do the same as well. They'll go through the hashtags that they're using, they'll amplify the voices of those who are using that hashtag. So it's really a way to gather everything that's happening on a certain topic and make it so it's more powerful and make it like almost like one voice, like many voices together advocating for a certain issue. Is it better to have a distinct hashtag that changes depending on what the issue is? Or is it better to have one like, for example, Me Too? is so well known mm -hmm. now. Some generic specific, if that isn't too much of a contradiction, but something where people will go, okay, that's ACLU. Okay, that is beyond the bomb. Mm -hmm. Or is it better for us to have something specific because of this issue that came up today? I think it depends. I know that's not a great answer, but I think it depends on what kind of campaign and what kind of goals you're trying to get to. So I think for using specific hashtags, so something like what Beyond the Bomb uses of hashtag future first or hashtag no first use. When other groups, especially those in the like, nuclear advocacy community, will use something like hashtag no first use and someone will click on that, most likely they'll also be brought to our Twitter or Instagram account because we use it so often. But I also think some of those more generic hashtags, if it is more of like a broad, issue like something like me too is a great example that like if it's already in use and you find it useful to your campaign and it's something that people are already monitoring it's something that people are using on a consistent basis and you have a reason and a way to use that hashtag absolutely jump on that like i think that's a great example with like the count every vote hashtag or the protect the results hashtag you know it was used by these like you know 10 to 20 groups but also like i as an individual tweeting when i was using like hashtag count every vote then some of these other groups were seeing my tweets as well and amplifying them so it's really like what are you looking to get out of this and what is the type of campaign so it sounds like it's 
if I can make an analogy, the hashtag is like a dot and we play the game of connect the dots depending on what the interest is. So this is about building networks of shared interest in a topic. Would that be a fair way to look at it? Yeah, absolutely. And is there any crossover at all between a hashtag on Facebook being read on Twitter and Instagram, or can I drop all of those hash marks from my Facebook posts? Yeah, so Facebook hashtags aren't as useful just because like when you, it's not as useful for when you're searching, whereas Twitter is really useful for that searching. Instagram is a little bit different. I think people should absolutely use hashtags because you can also follow certain hashtags on Instagram as well. So I follow on Instagram like hashtag Black Lives Matter and hashtag No First Youth and you can just see all of the content and like the top content as well that are like really popular posts using hashtag Black Lives Matter or whatnot. So I think that Instagram is absolutely useful for hashtags. Facebook, not as much. Well, I'm signing up for that course the next time you give it. That's basic. Awesome. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the start of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, which began on March 11 of 2011 and will not end in any foreseeable future. We know the nuclear industry is going to be throwing millions upon millions of PR dollars on their talking points, prepared material, trained speakers, anything on this anniversary to convince everybody that there's no problem, you can eat the food, you can drink the water, and you should come to the Olympics. What are some of the things we need to be not only thinking about, but actually doing now to prepare ourselves digitally for this anniversary so that we can at minimum maintain where we have been, if not move our message to the fore? Yeah, so I will admit that Fukushima isn't one of my areas of expertise, but just speaking from like a communication standpoint, I think that it's really having some kind of concrete campaign laid out beforehand. It's really, what is the goal that you're trying to obtain by talking about the anniversary of Fukushima? And what is like the short-term goal of it? What's the midterm goal of it? What's the long-term goal? And how are you going to accomplish each of those goals? Is there a certain solution that different groups have? Is it a unified goal and a unified solution that each of these groups have, um, or are there like multiple going on in this community? And so I, I think it's a lot of conversations probably, and they're probably already happening amongst these groups of what they're advocating for, but even setting like concrete benchmarks of like, do we want to reach a certain number of people? And you can also do like beyond like typical social media, like posting on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can also do like paid ads depending on budget and that tends to reach an audience that like you can pick out a certain target audience that you would prefer to reach if you have a certain budget to do that. So it's really sitting down and saying like, what is the opposition saying? What are we saying? And how are we going to reach that goal? And especially with digital platforms, it's who what audience do each of these groups have? Because I know a lot of like, each of these groups will definitely have a different audience. Some may skew older, some may skew younger, some may skew, uh, you know, more like older white male. And it's going and in, diving into what are these different audiences and how do we differentiate our messages between these different audiences? And then how are we also unifying that strategy as a whole?
Great, let's get started. If you could give established activists one piece of advice as how to increase their social media presence with their message and for their message, what would that be? One of my favorite parts about Twitter and Instagram is all of the people I've actually met through these platforms. And this is what I always tell the Beyond the Bomb fellows is really use these social media platforms almost as like networking tools. Like sometimes I really hate that word networking, but uh, I think it does really work for engaging with each other and seeing what is interesting from like these different communities. Cause I know even like sometimes the people that work on like nuclear energy and nuclear waste may be different from like nuclear weapons, like anti-nuclear weapons community and anti-climate change community. And so it's really about engaging with each other amplifying each other's voices authentically. And that's how you really start to build your social media following is really like you can use what's called Twitter list on Twitter. So you can put together different lists where you add different accounts and you can monitor those lists. So I, I know for Beyond the Bomb, I have uh, multiple Twitter lists, but like one for our smaller community, we have something called our the United Against Nuclear War Coalition. And so I have those six or seven groups and like individuals from those groups in this Twitter list. And I have some that's like the large anti-nuclear weapons community. And then some like I have a climate change list. I have like an ending endless war Twitter list. And so it's really about monitoring those lists seeing what kind of information and things are being amplified and then like authentically engaging with them. And I think using the direct message function on Twitter and on Instagram and really engaging with each other authentically, that's really how like, I've built social media for Beyond the Bomb in my own uh, and Global Zero and my own personal social media accounts as well, is really just meeting these people. And then that, that opens up so many opportunities when different people in different communities are retweeting and liking and engaging with you, then that opens your content up to their whole audience as well. So if there is a group that has a really large Twitter following, like say they do have something like 20,000 Twitter followers, when they retweet the tweet that you're putting out, that means you could be reaching some of those 20,000 people. So that's about starting those authentic relationships and building from there. It sounds like we should all be retweeting and commenting and signing up and following and all the rest of that on Twitter. I must admit, I do not know anything about Instagram, but I think I'm about <laughs> to learn. Now, when and how and where do you train people in doing this? Because you seem to have a great conceptual grasp of what it is we need to do and how it is it can be accomplished. So please, in lieu of being able to open up your brain and pour it directly into ours, how can we engage to learn more? Absolutely. Yeah, I can definitely offer any kind of training, any kind of presentation to anyone who's interested, especially if it is the 10th anniversary of Fukushima, if there's a group of people that are really interested I can definitely give, I, I have like a certain training that I, I give on communicating and messaging and social media. I've mostly given it to Beyond the Bomb fellows. Is I give a social media training every semester as well as like so many other trainings like on how to write a blog post and how to write an op-ed and how to like write an email to send to your district to talk about no first use. So there's a variety of trainings I kind of have in my arsenal 
And I'm definitely happy to give it to any kind of group that are interested in learning more about social media and how to improve upon their campaigns using digital platforms. How do we contact you? If you want to go to either Beyond the Bomb or Global Zero's website, that's beyondthebomb.org or globalzero.org. I'm not sure if my email is on either one of those, but you can also email me at Colleen, C-O-L-L-E-E-N at beyondthebomb.org. Or you can also follow me on Twitter and that's Simu11 underscore on Twitter. So there's probably a variety of ways to contact me. I'm happy to, to talk to anybody about how to do this. Anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to add at this time? Yeah, I think just kind of closing out, I think I really got into this space kind of coming from like a wonky, like like I said in the beginning, like policy wonky. I really wanted to be like this policy expert. And I really want to communicate to like everybody listening that you can use so many different skills that you have to kind of break into this field. Or even if you just want to do something on the side and really just want to even do like small things to help us achieve the goal of eliminating nuclear weapons. Like there's so many things that I think this field could use so many different skills, whether you do want to use social media, whether you're a musician, whether you're an artist, whether you're an engineer, whether you're in the medical field, like there's so many different skills that I think this field really needs. And that's what I'm really hoping to communicate people who communicate to people who are really looking to get involved more. I think you are a breath of fresh air. I think you represent the kind of energy and knowledge and really gut level excitement about doing this work that we need to infuse throughout this movement, not only for those of us who are over 60 by a good deal, who've got gray hair, but those younger as well, because the issues that we're talking about are global. And there's not a single person on this planet who is not impacted by it. Mm -hmm. So knowing that you are there and hearing what it is that you have to offer, I'm very excited about what the future can hold for all of us. And for now, Colleen Moore, thank you so very much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks so much for having me. That was Colleen Moore. Digital Engagement Manager for Global Zero and Beyond the Bomb. To find out when her next trainings are scheduled or to book one for your group, you can email her at colleen at beyondthebomb.org. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. The United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research has published a 22-page booklet, the Gender and Disarmament Resource Pack, and it's from the International Gender Champions Disarmament Impact Group, which is part of this UN organization. The Resource Pack contains information on the relevance of gender perspectives to arms control, nonproliferation, and disarmament, as well as practical ideas that can support diplomats in applying a gender lens to their work. If you wish to download this free resource, we will have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 571. And there is a petition out that could use your signature. 
It is to tell Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm to support a just transition for reactor communities in Michigan and California. The background is that the Palisades nuclear plant in Michigan was shut down for good as of May 22nd of this year, and the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant in California is scheduled to be shut down in August of 2025. This is to speak out against a last-minute federal bailout that would restart Palisades and keep Diablo Canyon from shutting down, while at the same time, the Department of Energy makes sure that the community and workers at Palisades and Diablo Canyon land on their feet. The short version? Say no to nuclear bailouts and yes to just transitions at California and Michigan nuclear reactors. We'll have a link up on the website. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, antebellum.wordpress.com, finance.yahoo.com, Greensboro News and Record, mlive.com, cnbc.com, tokyo-np.co.jp, japantimes.co.jp, asahi.com, nhk.or.jp, telegraph.co.uk, claimsjournal.com, bengo4.com, reuters.com, france24.com, globeecho.com, itv.com, culturico.com, theguardian.com, and, as always, the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for the weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email each week so you don't miss a single episode, easily done. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, put in your first name and your email address, and bingo! There it will be every week, so you never need to miss another episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. And of course, for the more technologically inclined, you can sign up. You can sign up at any of the podcast distribution sites. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment right now, go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, and look for that modest-sized red button. Click on it, follow the prompts, and whatever you can do to help, know that we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022. Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You can use it as long as you cite the program, the website, and acknowledge any of the guests you may be quoting. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that the last thing anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. <sighs> Let's not go there. And there you go. You've just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.